0: You're listening to Ocean Currents, a podcast brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. This radio program was originally broadcast on KWMR in Point Reyes Station, California. Thanks for listening. Welcome to another edition of Ocean Currents. I'm your host, Jennifer Stock. On this show, I talk with scientists, educators, explorers, policymakers, ocean enthusiasts, adventurers, and today, historians, and more, all uncovering and learning about the mysterious and vital part of our planet, the Blue Ocean. I bring this show to you monthly on KWMR from NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, one of four national marine sanctuaries in California, all working to protect unique and biologically diverse ecosystems. Cordell Bank is located just offshore of the KWMR listening radius off the Marin-Sonoma coast and is a thriving area with ocean life above and below the surface. The boundary between sea and land is the most fleeting and transitory feature of the Earth. This was said by Rachel Carson. And isn't it, when you think about the very long history humans have had on this planet, our relationship with this fleeting and transitory feature goes a long way back. Today, we are focusing on the edge of the sea, where the oceans, bays, and estuaries meet with the land. On Ocean Currents, we often cover biological habitats and ecosystems in depth as it relates to marine species, but my guest today has been studying the human history on our shores, going back in time to when humans first walked and made their living off the land and sea. My guest is John Gillis. He is a history professor emeritus at Rutgers University, and is a bi-coastal, which we'll talk a little bit more about today, spending part of his year in Berkeley, California, and part of it on May in Maine. He's the author of several books, most recently The Human Shore, Seacoasts, and History. John, welcome to KWMR. It's a pleasure to have you here live in the studio. Well,
1: thanks, Jenny. This is great.
0: So we, I originally contacted John because I read an opinion piece that he wrote about sand mining that's happening globally, and it really was an issue that I did not know about so much. And then I realized there was a whole other dimension of his work. So we'll talk a little bit about both today on the show. Um, You had a different historical focus earlier in your academic career. Um, It was rather recent, 2004, where you came to the sea studying history and geography of coasts and coastal peoples. What brought you to the sea's edge?
1: Well, um, that's a very good question. Um, it all uh, began when I realized that the population everywhere in the globe now is moving to the edge of the sea, uh, maybe not right to the edge, but um, in a way that has um, had devastating effects on um, the edge itself and the sea itself. So once I, um, my historical instinct Uh, Kicked in. I said, "Well, when did this begin? When did this um, uh, crowding of the of the shore begin?" And um, uh, that caused me to look back. Ultimately, about two hundred and sixty thousand years, to when um, Africans who are undergoing a uh, ecological crisis of drought. Well, that sounds familiar. Came down to the shore, uh, the extreme southern shore. Of their continent, discovered these marvelous caves. Discovered the richness of the of the shore environment, with its uh, all its uh, shellfish, its uh, uh, its various kinds of uh, seaweed, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And that's when it all began. It, you don't you don't go back. It doesn't begin in the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden was the shore. That is the central message of my book. Um,
0: You talk a little bit about the difference between the coast and the shore. Can you talk about that? What's the difference to you?
1: All right. The shore is, in my view, and it should be used in this way, to refer to the natural environment, uh, which can never be totally natural. Let's get that out of the way. But uh, the way to talk about the shore is uh, uh, the intersection between land and water. Or to use a more technical term, I wish everyone would adopt this because it's a lovely little term, uh, the ecotone. Ecotones are where two ecosystems intersect. And the combination of these, the intersection, the interface, is the richest of all um, environments. So you have two environments to begin with. You have the, the, the sea and you have the shore. Put them together, and it's like a multiplier effect, Uh, not only a richness of diversity of species, um, both land species and sea species, but also simply the creativity and the generativity of this as, uh, as has been proven time and time again in human history and in natural history. So I regard... Us as a marine species. I don't see why we should back away from that. We've been involved with water. Um, We are water. I mean, that's what we're composed of. So let's call ourselves a marine species. And that might help get us uh, a little more, shall we say, funding. (laughs) Um, We need to, you know, our species has to be preserved as well. And um, my argument would be that We can learn so much from the history of that long relationship.
0: That's one of the things you write about is that over time there were populations along the coast. And during sea level rise, the first sea level rise that we know about in our paleo record or one that we study most closely to us uh, about 10,000 years ago, the ocean was 400 feet lower, yes. and then it rose, and there are massive population movements and radical changes of life. Can you talk about some of those well, communities?
1: If, um, sure. If you, if you go back all the way, as I would want to carry you, more than 200,000 years, there have been several of these events of um, sea level rise or sea level decline and uh, somehow humans have survived all of these. I'm not advocating for this, but I am. Um, I'm. I'm, uh, I'm not a catastrophic uh, historian. I think uh, there are adaptations, there are costs, but the the point is that that um, we've encountered this before, and um, so we need not panic in the face of everything that's being told us today. So we certainly have to be aware of it, but no, there there have been many, many periods of human migration, particularly along shores. You see, what all hunter-gatherer populations do is, um, uh, when they run out of uh, the richness of one particular area, they move. And one of the tricks of human survival and development has always been movement. Now. Shores move, too. Sand moves. Beaches move. Um, These are, as I said, I think you said in your introduction, these are the most transitory places on Earth. And that's why they've been so rich and uh, and fecund. Um, But we we are now trying to stabilize, fix, concretize, um, hold onto these shores in ways that are uh, not only – they're simply counterproductive. Now, that comes back to your question, the shore and the coast. Okay. So the shore is this living thing, combined water and land. It lives, it moves, it fights back on its own, and it has sustained itself over thousands of years that we know of and probably millions of years before that. The coast, however, is a recent invention. Uh, we can argue about this, but let me give you one single fact that I think is very important for everyone to know. The idea of the uh, of the seashore is um, is one thing, but the coastline uh, is another, and it was not until the eighteenth century, and that 's only the blink of an eye ago that um, surveyors, mappers developers. Uh, drew a line literally in the sand and said, "This is the shore line. Let us uh, sustain it. Let us defend it. This is our maginot of, of the of the sea." And um, from that point on, we're, we've been in trouble uh, because it, it it can't be sustained. There is no line. Nature doesn't draw lines, straight lines. Nature loves curves. It loves meanders. It loves things that live and move with us. And um, that's one of the things that you can take away from people like Thoreau or Rachel Carson or, or Rebecca Solnit, our great uh, West Coast treasure of a writer and ecologist. Uh, that's, what, that's, what, that's what I'm talking about.
0: The challenge, though, being at this point in history that we have a human population that is so great. And I think one of the things I'm concerned about with this sea level rise is we have so <clears throat> many more people on this planet than we likely did during that last sea oh, level yes. rise. Oh, yes. So that's, that's a concern. Well, I'm
1: not a Malthusian. Um, uh, you know, in the 1960s, there was this guy down at Stanford by the name of Paul Ehrlich. Who wrote a couple of books called A Population Bomb and something else? And he panicked everybody. He said, We're running out of uh, space, we're running out of time. I don't see any evidence of that. Um, this is a, a, the earth can, uh, under proper conditions, under proper stewardship, and the sea and the shore accommodate, if done properly, more than the population. And more than the population projections, um, it's simply the way we do it, and uh, this is, um, you know, it's not a numbers game. It really is not a numbers game. It never has been, but under the conditions of capitalism, where so few people are allowed to have a voice uh, in what happens to our environment, that does become a problem because this is not a democratic environment any longer. Um, it used to be as as early as the, as late as the, well, I guess you'd say early, um, as, the, as the 19th century, when I was astonished um, by my own reading on this to find that there, there were no trespassing signs in the 19th century. Uh, uh, and Thoreau, for example, um, who was a, Uh, Shore lover as well as a a a walker of prodigious capacity, he just trespassed over everything. And there's no reason we couldn't go back to that.
0: For those tuning in, this is KWMR, and you're listening to Ocean Currents. My name's Jennifer Stock, and my guest today is John Gillis, and he is a historian, author of The Human Shore: Sea Coasts in History. And as I look at the title of the book, Sea Coasts in History, I see people Mm -hmm. on the coast or the shore. And I really like the distinction you make between the shore, this living, breathing, changing, fluctuating ecotone, versus the coast that is very human generated and delineated. And it makes a lot of sense to me.
1: Yeah. Delineated is the clear word, linear is a human. You know, humans developed uh, something called geometry, and they developed linearity. Uh, But that is an imposition on nature. Uh, Nature resists it every time. Yeah.
0: You know, one of the things that I picked up on your book, and I had to read it a couple times because the first time I read it, I was taken back because... I think a lot of people disagree, but then I read it again and I realized, oh, I missed this. Okay, so you wrote, as civilizations encroached on lands around the world, the pristine had no place to go but to the sea. By the end of the 19th century and still today, it was assumed that of all the places on this planet, the oceans have been the least affected by humankind. And that's where I was like, what? But then you go to write about the the frequent references that uh, people said about the eternal sea, making it seem unchangeable. But where do you think and do you think historians have changed that perception? And hopefully the rest of our civilization has, too, that is not eternal.
1: Well, even Rachel Carson uh, talked about the immortal sea. And a new book by Jeff Bolster is called The Mortal Sea which is a corrective to this. Uh, the rate of extinctions uh, around the world in terms of fish and so on is enormous. So, uh, you know, I think we have to credit our, our, um, our comrades uh, in science for, uh, for discovering uh, the degree to which the sea is mortal. But now we can, uh, taking that insight, we can go back, as Jeff Bolster has done, thousands of years and find other moments of mortality when uh, huge fish stocks disappeared or were overfished. Um, and they are both warnings and, I would one say, uh, hopeful signs that we can get through some of this.
0: And rebound and sustain mm-hmm. ourselves as a yes. population.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: So let's talk about your bicoastalism. Yeah. I share this with you because, well, I did for a few years when I was... Going back and forth from my acetique <laughs> world to my Catalina world, and now I'm pretty stuck here on the west coast, but you are you consider yourself a bicoastal, and you were talking earlier yeah. that 's kind of an interesting definition. What is it
1: well there's a downside to bicoastalism um, in insofar as it causes you to uh, ignore the middle and i don't think we can afford in this country to become Two sort of elite uh, coastal communities, usually more liberal or even progressive than the middle. We can't afford that. So uh, I'm, I'm always a little leery in identifying myself as a bicoastal. But uh, bicoastalism really began with air air traffic. Uh, so you have to go back to the 60s and 70s when people could fly over the rest of the country and begin to ignore it, sometimes in the most obnoxious ways. So we've got to, again, it's a, we've got to reconcile ourselves um, to the Middle West. My parents were Middle Westerners. Uh, they're both buried in Iowa. Uh, so I want to take care of the whole damn thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a problem. It's a problem.
0: So where is your current other coast that you spent time in now?
1: Well, I'm here in in Berkeley, but our our true home, uh, ecologically, spiritually, uh, in every other way, is on an island called Great Gott Island off the Acadia National Park in Maine. And it is one of the great um, treasures of the world. It's a very small island. It uh, has never had any commercial use, except in the days when fishing, um, uh, lobster fishing was uh, was still operational there. But as soon as uh, the motor-powered boat came in, the people of Great God Island picked up and went to shore, or went to harbor, I should say. And at that point, the island was abandoned. Some of the houses fell down or sold off to... From aways, as we call them, including me, and uh, from that point onward, this has been a summer island it is there is no one there right now there shouldn't be, um, although we d- did have a moose <laughs> swim out to the island uh last year and over winter, which is um, interesting interesting fact but um it's uh well it's a privilege uh to be a part of that that place and I wrote a book called. Islands of the Mind, um, To uh, again, to explain to myself, why do people l- love islands so much? And um, it turns out that's not uh, so obvious uh, until you understand the whole history of religion, of uh, cultural change, of geography, and so on.
0: That's fascinating. And I want to follow up on that at another time, because I, for a while, just had a fascination with islands and was Living island to island, and oh. thought for I loved the remoteness the how difficult yes. it was to get food and being trapped by the weather <laughs> and just for me, it was the most romantic life to have that being living in such uh, unity with yeah. your environment. It was such a special time i 'd like to learn more about that the east coast is uh is different in the sense of the changes it receives annually to the shore yes. We have hurricanes. We have nor'easters on the east coast. Yes. And we have these very—what's um, the word? The islands roll over on themselves. These barrier islands, and that's how they have always been geologically. But we have planted ourselves on these islands, and I'm curious mm-hmm. about your thoughts with um, rebuilding ideas after Hurricane Sandy, especially mm-hmm. on the Jersey Shore and. <clears throat> I don't actually know what their plans are but I remember <laughs> hearing they will rebuild. And oh, yeah, what are your yeah, thoughts yeah. on that?
1: Well, this defensiveness <laughs> um uh Chris Christie who should not be president of anything uh, apart from a local hunting club or something uh said um, you know of the of the storm uh, that we are going to fight back against uh, against nature this is this is our struggle and um, as you know nothing can be uh, worse than to fight against nature, and not to take into account the renewal of these barrier islands and all sand-formed islands uh, by the natural action uh, of the waves. And in fact, the big storms are are vital to the health of these of these islands because they, you know, they re- replenish in many cases the sand. They take it away, but they replenish it. So, yeah, yeah, and it's. Um, Uh, They're little understood. And the, is there a plan, you say? No. There's no (laughs) plan because there's no, like most of American politics, there's no long-term planning. There's no strategy. Um, And the obvious thing to do would be to retreat. But that's unacceptable. You know, that's unacceptable.
0: I did hear on NPR, and I didn't do any research on this to follow up, but... There are some communities in Staten Island that are actually telling people not to come back.
1: Yeah, there are some abandoned communities. Um, You know, the, the sad part of this is that they're the poorest. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's very easy to push them aside because they've had no power to begin with. They're, uh, I won't call them squatters, but they come very close. Their their leases and tenures are are usually very weak. The problem is the damn wealthy people um, who have bought in to this shorefront Italy, um have invested heavily and have the political clout. To have the corps of engineers and other people backing them up for shore replenishment um, and restoration, and so it's an all-out political battle. I mean, it's as simple as that. Um, nobody's going to wave a wand over it. Um, it's going to come down to, as in all things right now, um, the rich versus the middle class, or uh, or the poor, whatever you uh, prefer. You can see that it's written. Yeah, It's right there in the sand. It's, uh, yeah, yeah, that's...
0: It'll be interesting to see when uh, everybody wakes up a little bit about that. And yeah. hopefully we won't have more loss of life as a result of these storms, but they're yes. pretty intense and they're not going away. No. You know, I want to go way back to uh, earlier times, and you were writing about the historical use of the sea Homo sapiens actually mm-hmm. living by the sea, not yes. inland. And then I wanted to ask, because I know you wrote about this a little bit, about their success at the shore versus inland. And yes. was there more success, more longevity, more adaptation strategies mm-hmm. by living at the coast? Or can you talk a little bit about yeah, that? In the
1: long run, I think it's safe to say um, that uh, they, they have been more successful on the coast. Um There are plenty of examples of inland adaptation and people living, for example, in high altitudes as well. But the fact is that um, the sea provides a a lot of things and not just the, shall we say, the richness of the the food sources and all of that. But it provides, it seems, and it's very hard to get hold of, it seems to provide inspiration as well. It seems to provide a sense um, of change, the rhythms of change. Um, That seems to—it's a place of creativity. Where do artists come down to now and particularly now to find inspiration for their their work? Where do um, authors—all of these things suggest that the sea has been a vital spiritual as well as material resource— and the shore particularly because of the following thing it's a liminal area it's full of mystery Um, it stimulates one to be curious about what's going on it's a transition zone it's liminal in the sense that uh, all the great um, uh, how would one say inspirational sites have been so there's a lot to be thought about there and, and And I I won't claim to be original in this. Um, Many others have pointed this out. But uh, we ought to take a little more cognizance of it.
0: It triggers me to think of uh, a new book out called Blue Mind by Wallace J. Nichols. Have you read that book? No, I
1: haven't. Blue Mind. It's all
0: about this. What is it about the sea that... That it relaxes us, changes us. And he really goes into the physical studies with neurologists about really? the sea. It's fascinating. And okay. I hope to have Jay on a future show to talk about that. But, you know, I, reading parts of your book and just you talking about that, Wonderful. it really comes down to that. There's Wonderful. this connection that's almost hard to say, name, no. define. And he does tend to, he tries to do that in his book, Blue Mind. Where, do, where does
1: he uh, exist, this man?
0: Davenport, California, south of. Pacifica, north okay. of Santa Cruz. Oh, neat. Yeah, check it out. All right, I will. Good Definitely. Well, I wanted to ask one more question before we come up to the break here, um, and then I'd love to talk about the sand issues right, going on in our second half. But um, one thing that, thinking about the, the shore and then the coast, we historically have seen the shore and the coast as an area of danger and fear mm-hmm. to be avoided. And when... Did that perception change? You were just mentioning mm-hmm. about recreation and relaxation. But, yeah. you know, I was thinking back in just the history I can think of mm-hmm. of wartime and ships exploring the coast and coming ashore there. Or when did we switch from that danger fear to moving half, more than mm-hmm. half the population to within 50 <laughs> yeah. miles of the coast yeah, exactly. to, to love it to death?
1: Yeah, loving it to death is... is uh, Uh, is a good way to put it. Um, It's remarkably uh, quick and remarkably recent. It's the late uh, 18th century. It's the Romantic period. Um, It happened first among poets, uh, but it it quickly spread to the general population. People came down to the shore, founded spas, uh, began uh, bathing, which was not swimming, but dipping in the water, uh, and all sorts of other things flowed from that. The artists came down to the shore, and in Maine, for example, uh, the this is an interesting thing, actually, that um, uh, people flocked to Maine uh, from the middle of the 19th century onward because they saw the pictures, because they read the um, the literature, because they wanted to share in this. So there's a powerful, intellectual, aesthetic uh, pull, and it's not. It's it. It comes at a particular moment. It is one of these revolutions of the mind, as much as anything else, um, that gave us um, th- that thing called Romanticism. But it gave us a lot more. Yeah.
0: Wonderful. The 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 role of art in a way art, actually art, is huge. Art. It
1: is. It is.
0: I'm sure music as well. Well, we're going to take a quick break here. This is Ocean Currents on KWMR. My name's Jennifer Stock, and my guest in the studio is author John Gillis. We'll be back in just a few moments. Welcome back, thanks for sticking with us you 're listening to ocean currents here on KWMR in the studio with me. I have John Gillis, a historian and an author and we 're discussing the the shore and the coast, which i 've learned very different they 're very different from each other, one being much more natural and the other being the human the human influence being the coast and a couple things came up earlier that wanted me to go into this topic, but why not now? Mm-hmm. Um, How I found John was reading his opinion piece uh, in the New York Times about the global trade. I don't even know if it's a trade, a global economy around sand. And I hadn't really read a ton about this. I knew about mining and Mm -hmm. knew knew about sand being a valuable commodity, but I didn't realize that this was a billion-dollar business growing. And I also saw a film trailer for a film about this that was just – kind of debuted at a little pre-event of the Ocean Film Festival, and hmm. holy cow, it's, this is a big issue, and you it have is. a lot to say about it. Yeah. So what is, what's going on with the sand business in the world?
1: Well, this is interesting. Um, first of all, you have to understand that the sandy beach uh, that we uh, treasure so much today and so much money is poured into um, is a really recent phenomenon. In fact, the beach didn't really attract people until the early twentieth century when um uh coming down to the to the beach or the shore uh, became a favored leisure activity and at that point, and this has something to do with our um with our love of nature of swimming which really wasn't uh, developed as a mass sport until the late 19th century, but also sunbathing, which the Germans <laughs> like this, brought us through this worship of the naked body, the sun, and nature. And by the 20s, um, beaches had become all the rage, a place to be seen with fewer clothes on than any time before. But this is when sand itself became a valuable commodity and had to be restored or replaced because, you know, the old shores were, uh, in England, they called them cobble, and they're really small stones which aren't very comfortable to lie on. So uh, the idea of a, of a beach now is like a, uh, like a bed, right? And sand is, uh, particularly when it's pure white or sometimes pure black, um, is uh, thought of as like the great uh, the great place to be, but that 's so recent it really wasn 't until after the second world war that beaches uh, took on this um, uh, their value, and sandy beaches became everything to the elites and then ultimately to the masses um, and that 's where it begins so it 's the point to be made here is that the beach as we know it, as a supposedly pristine beach. No seaweed, no detritus, no wrecks, nothing like that. Um, this is only about uh, uh, at most 50 years old. And I'm not entirely convinced that it's going to survive because beaches are now being uh, overwhelmed by uh, – The numbers of people who have come down to them, purchased them, uh, destroyed them systematically. And it's quite possible that 100 years from now people will say, beach, where is that? What is that? Uh, It could be an entirely different thing by that time.
0: Well, that's certainly – as funny as you're speaking, it's definitely the human perspective about the coastal beach culture. And in my mind, I'm thinking – of the ecosystems of the shorebirds mm-hmm. and the haul-outs for the elephant seals and harbor seals and um, the beach rat community where mm-hmm. the detritus washes up and all the cool things. I just spent a lot of time at the beach this weekend, all so right. it's fresh in my, yes. my mind. <laughs> um, but that scares me. We might lose the thought of what a beach is. Yeah, but, you, but look, the,
1: the beach we're talking about, the pristine beach, The sand beach is only a small proportion in its perfection of all the shores in the world. So, there are many, many, many shores, including those in Maine, that actually have very little sand except in a few spots where it's been ecologically sound. Um, So, there's no reason why we can't save the shores uh, and... You know, shall we say, put the beaches on the back burner, because right now the preservation of the beach is a real threat to the shore. And the shore is the larger thing we've got to keep our eye on.
0: So one of the things you're, I'm thinking of when you're talking about the preservation of beach, you're th- I'm thinking you're thinking about beach re- renourishment when sand has washed away. Yes. Communities and cities bring sand back to bring people back. Yes. So in that way, because we don't do that so much here.
1: No, you're lucky. Uh, lucky. But, you know, this this is um, uh, until you get to Southern California and a few other uh, locales, this is not a beachy. I mean, the whole identity of California is tied up with beach. But actually, um, the whole coast of California and Oregon and Washington is not a particularly beachy place. Um, but it's a shore place. The shores are beautiful beyond comparison here. Um, frankly, the Joysy Shore, where I went as a tiny child and grew up because I'm a Joysy boy, uh, doesn't hold a candle to. Uh, to uh, an ordinary piece of the Mendocino coast, an ordinary piece
0: uncomparable
1: yeah no there 's no yeah <laughs> in terms of the wildlife, yeah. in terms of the seabirds, in terms of the sheer dynamic um, yeah
0: it 's interesting because I grew up on Long Island, and my beach that I went to was Fire Island, and mm-hmm. I spent a lot of time in an area that 's a federal wilderness area. Mm-hmm. And that was my beach. Like, in my mind, I was – and I knew it was rare. I had never luckily been to the Jersey Shore, but I did later <laughs> on in college and realized this is such a foreign place. It's the ocean beach. It's like just a disco. It's just crazy compared yes. to the natural beaches. There's a yes. big diff, big difference. There's
1: a big difference, yeah. So that's that's why I'm arguing. I, I'd love to have an argument with somebody about this. But I, I think the beach – uh, the sand beach is 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 really disposable.
0: Well, uh, it sounds like we're losing sand to industry, oh. losing it from these shores, yes. ecotones permanently, yes. to the industry where we make abrasives and glass and plastics and microchips, even toothpaste, oh, and now f- hydraulic fracturing yes. with uh, the tar sands, I'm, I'm imagining partially too. So what's... Can you tell us a little bit about this business, and in terms of where it's happening and where yeah. where areas are most at risk? I will say before you, you speak, though, that I researched here, and luckily within our national marine sanctuaries, yeah. it's a, it's prohibited activity. Excellent. So I was very feeling very thankful and proud yesterday yeah. when I was like, I'm sitting on a beach, and this sand isn't going away. Yeah.
1: Good for you, but like uh, so many things. Um, there's always some place else in the world, the underdeveloped world, where, you know, poor people are happy to sell their heritage to the, the biggest, to the highest bidders. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, look, it's, um, uh, again, the, it, it's differentiated where you are and so on. But one of the biggest uh, users, 80% of all sand goes into concrete. Now, here's the real irony. Concrete is what uh, sea walls made, are made of. Sea walls, um, in addition to uh, sea mining of sand, or mining of sand, are the biggest single destroyers uh, or eroders of beaches, because they stop the flow, the natural flows, in and offshore, alongshore of sand, kill the beaches, um, and render us even more vulnerable to erosion. So, how do you like that? I mean, the very thing that these things are made of are is
0: hurting the very thing it off. comes from yeah,
1: yeah this is this, that it, sounds very it's, human It's a sweet irony <laughs> to say the least
0: I would recommend people if they want to learn more about this to see this movie. It's at the San Francisco International Ocean Film Festival, which is at the end of February. It's all about the <clears> sand, and that they're the author or the uh, filmmaker who produced it actually was motivated to produce it because he went back to a beach that he grew up on, and there was no sand on it yeah, and he yeah. did some research and discovered this big thing and I just was blown away I, I didn't realize and it's beach sand that is highly preferable because desert sand doesn't have the doesn't have the right grain size for together, adhering.
1: Yes. yeah but there's a there's another site that your audience should go to, which is the best single site on the web for coastal uh, preservation. It's called Coastal Care. Uh, just Google Coastal Care. It's not a lotion. It's not a suntan <laughs> product. It is it's the work of, of two uh, Southern Californians who have devoted themselves to coastal care. And it's it's illustrated every week, every day almost. There's another article, a total update. It's the, it's the best single thing I've ever seen. Great. Coastal care. I
0: look forward to that. Coastal
1: care, yeah.
0: Well, you've been involved in other projects, and uh, what are you working on right now?
1: Well, I, uh, I have to go back to say that I began as a social historian. I... Uh, I left behind political history because I found that was um, not very interesting. And then so I developed uh, um, my brand, if you can call it that, in social and cultural history, trying to understand how uh, how uh, the society and culture have changed over time. And now I want to take on something that has intrigued me for some time now, and that is uh, our 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 spatial and temporal sense of ourselves, which I think lies uh, behind so much of what we do. Um, it's not always obvious that this is the case, but it, it certainly is. And so my latest project is on, um, is on the edginess which we've condemned ourselves to. Uh, edginess uh, in the dictionary means uh, a kind of intensity uh, but it also involves uh, anxiety, and part of that is temporal to be edgy is to be up to date to be uh, on the cutting edge of change and so on um, and um, but the uh, to be edgy on coasts means to harden coasts and to deny them their natural fluidity uh, their natural um, flexibility so what this leads me to is the interesting observation, which uh, came to me through my own uh, experience with bicoastiality, of how the coasts or the edges have come to dominate our mental geography. You know, when we imagine America, it's a kind of this intense West East Coast, particularly if you live there, or maybe the maybe the Gulf Coast, and then in between is this. Big blank. But that's not the way this country was, was formed uh, originally, certainly in the not 19th century. Nor was it the way that, that um, we lived in cities, lived in families, lived in communities. There the thing was the center, the community, um, the middle. And now that's getting all washed out. We talk about edge cities which have no boundaries at all. You know, you don't know when you're leaving a city or entering a city. Um, where is the center of San Francisco? Can you tell me? Is it North Beach? Is it Union Square? Is it, you know, Candlestick Park? The point is we've, as, a, as people, and this tr- is true of home as well. Today, home is no longer organized around a hearth. Some have said that the television set is now the hearth. But every room has a television, so where is the hearth? And I can give you other examples of this sort of emptying out um, and the decentering of modern life. And I want to I explore writing a, a history of this which will engage people in this, this crucial question of why are we fleeing to the edges and thereby uh, creating uh, more problems for ourselves than we can solve.
0: Wow. Very interesting topic to dive into, for sure. Thank you. We look forward to learning more about that. Um, you have a, definitely a nice array of different types of writings, and is there a website that people can follow your work on more and yes. see, hear yeah. more about you?
1: Yeah. Um, I have a website. It's very simple to get to it. John R. Gillis, G-I-L-L-I-S. You have to put in the R. Uh, but when you, you um, uh, Google that in, you'll come up against something like writer and historian. And in that, you'll find, um, oh, just a, uh, a mix of things, uh, my bibliography, my most recent articles, including those in the Times, uh, some, some little watercolors that I've done from Gotts Island. Um, my, my work is always in, inspired by uh, what I paint as well. I find that you know this is; uh, these are inseparable. So anyway, do you, um,
0: do you paint a lot? Around, I do up, along on, the water. up in Maine.
1: I I, I don't here. I'm uh, there's some something that stops me from painting in an urban environment. Um, but um, it's, a, um, it's a it's a it's a joy. It's a joy. And if I ever stopped writing, I would definitely go on painting because it's. Uh, it's one of these, uh, you know. You're in the zone. You're painting. Uh, it's coming from somewhere. Where is it? And oh, it's, wonderful. it's wonderful.
0: Wonderful. Well, we have a few more minutes. If there was one thing you really wish people knew about about their relationship to the sea, what would it be?
1: Well, that their the relationship to the sea, first of all, is 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 a critical one. Uh, that that sounds very easy to say. Um, But it's one that that, uh, is our responsibility. Um, uh, We can change it. We've changed it several times over 200,000 years. We've changed it even more in the last 100, 200, and maybe most of all in the last 50 years. So as a historian, what I understand is that everything is up for grabs. Everything is up for change. And this idea that it has to be this way or another is absolutely pure nonsense because I can, I can show you how much it's changed. I can show you the struggles that people have had over uh, the seafront, over the shores, over wetlands, for example, um, that have been decided sometimes by the cruelest means of force and violence, but also by... Sometimes, like through the writings of Rachel Carson and others, through persuasion, through poetry, through art, through um, felicitous writing. So, you know, here I am. I don't have any power. I don't have any money. I don't have any political stance. But I think writing a book, is. um, it makes me feel like I'm doing something in the world.
0: Wonderful. John, thank you for coming to the studio and sharing with me today in the studio and for those tuning in I've been talking with John Gillis he is the author of The Human Shore, Seacoasts in History as well as some other books and I appreciate you coming in today
1: Well got, I said this on a break that you are such a well informed interviewer and it's a, a real pleasure to talk to somebody so engaged and knowledgeable about topics we share. So thank you very much.
0: Thank you for the compliment. I really appreciate that. I, it's hard to not be – this is one of the reasons I started the show is I love the ocean and the coast and the shore so much that it would help me stay engaged in all these topics. So I appreciate that. Thank you. Good work. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and I have a couple just local announcements to share. All right, just a couple short announcements here before we wrap up Ocean Currents. Um, The Gulf of the Farallones and Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuaries are having Sanctuary Advisory Council meetings here in Point Reyes, uh, both on the same day, February 25th. And I want to make sure you understand these are public meetings. And if you're interested in what the sanctuaries do and how we work on protecting these places, this is a very important meeting to come to. Um, Whenever you can, these advisory council meetings are wonderful, open to the public, and sometimes very newsy and interesting. And I know there'll be updates at both meetings about the proposed sanctuary expansion, and you'll be able to learn more about them. So the date is February 25th. The Cordell Bank Advisory Council will be up at the Point Reyes National Seashore Association building at the Morgan Horse Ranch, 1230 to 345. And the Gulf of the Fairlands will be down at the Red Barn Classroom. Um, the agendas and all the details will will be posted on the websites within the week, so you can check back at farallons.noaa.gov or cordellbank.noaa.gov to get that information. I wanted to share that my favorite critter in the whole world, albatross, the albatross, you can... Peek in on the very intimate details of what it is like to raise an egg and a chick right this minute on Albatross Cam, and all you need to do is to get Google Albatross Cam. It's at the very very top. It's through Cornell University, and they have the camera on. Laysan albatrosses on Kauai, and apparently on a pear with a confirmed fertilized egg. <laughs> you can only hear this on ocean currents. But it's very wonderful. I mean, this is one of the benefits of technology and being able to, to witness these intimate details of these pelagic birds that spend most of their lives out at sea and they come to the shore mm. just to breed. So check out albatross cam. Uh, these Laysan albatrosses sometimes come all the way over here to our... To our uh, outer coast off on the about 20 miles offshore or so and then I also wanted to share as usual I'm always promoting the International Ocean Film Festival because it's such a great event you can go to oceanfilmfest.org and get the full schedule of films they're all posted now so you can see what films are when and there's brief synopsises about each film um, and when they are and you can buy tickets online The festival, February 27th through Monday, March 2nd, OceanFilmFest.org. Great event, all independently produced films and raising a lot of consciousness about different ocean issues. And I just wanted to say a little shout out to Michael Park in Canada for calling to express his enjoyment of this show. Mm. That was such a pleasure to get this message to hear all the way from Canada and I really would love to hear from other listeners. I always like to hear what people think, what they want to hear more about, future topics. You can email me at Stock at noaa.gov at any time. Send me some comments. Thanks for tuning in today. Ocean Currents is always the first Monday of every month, and you can catch past episodes by following my podcast in iTunes. Just search for Ocean Currents, and you can also go to cordellbank.noaa.gov and listen to past shows there as well. Thanks for tuning in today. Thank you for listening to Ocean Currents. This show is brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary on West Marin Community Radio, KWMR. Views expressed by guests on this program may or may not be that of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and are meant to be educational in nature. To learn more about Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, go to cordellbank.noaa.gov.